Right. You live in Philly, I'm assuming. I do. Do you? No, I lived in New York. Now I live in LA. Oh my gosh. I love that George is introducing me to so many LA people. I'm going to reveal my skin. Oh no. Oh, the big wow. reveal. It's very similar to your mask, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Put it back on. Put it back, put it back on. on, George. Just put it back on. It looks um, very good. Very shiny. Thank you. Very young. Youthful. Years have been ripped away. It was a honey mask. Oh. Well, uh, Anthony works in the beauty industry, so we'll talk about beauty secrets today yeah. on Queerona. Live from Philadelphia, you're listening to Corona, where three gay friends, each professors, creatives, and weirdos, talk with other queer and queer-adjacent creatives and personalities about anything they damn well like, from 80s pop culture to hypnotic sex practices, all while we're experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. Season one of Queerona was recorded between March 15th and May 15th of 2020. So now lean back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Queerona, where we investigate various issues related to homosexuals, queers, and others that are dealing with the pandemic and their artistry. Today, we're going to be talking about all that and more with our special guest, Anthony Joseph Hernandez, also known as the infamous drag queen, Shimon Jackson. Ooh. And we will be talking all about everything from beauty to drag race to diamond mining and more. Ooh. Very exciting. I wish someone had told me we would talk about diamond mining. I didn't do any research on that. I know. I <laughs> Google, Google. I'm looking for some questions. Naomi Campbell this morning told prosecutors two men came to her hotel room in 1997 with a gift. I saw a few stones in there. And, and there were very small, dirty-looking stones. Those dirty-looking stones turned out to be diamonds. Prosecutors believe blood diamonds from former Liberian warlord Charles Taylor. We went Anthony, you were sort of this goth, sort of gadzooks, crazy dresser in high school. Wait, you did or I did? You were. <laughs> yes, I was. I was very outlandish in high school. I was a raver, so... Um, yeah, it was interesting. I kind of went from trying to blend in in junior high and then in high school, I kind of was like, fuck it. I'm just going to wear whatever I want. And there was this group of kids, uh, like five of them, and they, you could tell, frequented raves and, you know, had blue hair, purple hair, wore tons of color. Um, even like the guys were like makeup and stuff like that. And so I kind of tried, started hanging out with them and then found out where they were hanging out and then started going to raves. And that kind of turned into me kind of dressing like a club kid at school every day, which was very fun. But also fun, not fun in other ways of being harassed for the way I dressed, but it was worth it, you know. Do you think that's why you sort of got into like doing hair and being a stylist and doing all this sort of like aesthetic type stuff? Yeah, I think it changing your look with the way that you dress or the being able to wear makeup um, or changing your hairstyle or all of the above, I think it made a profound impact on me. Like Kevin O'Quan's book, 
about uh, making faces, his makeup book and like the transformations that he had made and all the celebrities and turning them into other celebrities and those types of things, just kind of seeing how transformative it could be and then going to these parties and seeing these kind of underground kids that were in what I thought was just like boring Arizona, but there was this whole underground scene of these kids that were, you know, wearing these really elaborate outfits and turning themselves into these characters, something you would see like, you know, out of New York, but it was happening in Phoenix and I had no idea. So that was very liberating too. Just, you know, it wasn't really happening in my community where I was living, but being able to once or twice a month go to these parties and kind of then take that into my daily life was very, it was fun. You know, it's, you can't really do that as much as an adult unless you work in a industry that allows you to do that. And even with that, there's some kind of stigma usually. So, you know, it was fun to do it in high school where I really didn't, really had no, I just didn't care what anyone thought, you know, it was just in school. So it was fun. I would choose a costume every day. I would wear wings to school. I would like wear eyeliner. I had uh, these crazy bell bottoms that I would wear. I wore platform shoes, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy looks. What what was it that made you go? You said you were trying to fit in and then not like, what was it? Yeah, I think it was, you know, everybody, I think you being gay and growing up, you have this moment of like, okay, I just want to blend in. I don't want to stand out because I already stand out so much just being me. People are asking me crazy questions. And especially I think before puberty sets in, you don't really think about sex or gender in that same way as you do is once puberty kind of kicks in. So people saying that you're gay pertains to who you're having sex with. And when you're 10 years old, you're not really having sex, you know? So I think just trying to blend in is kind of a defense mechanism. Who would want to kill the cook? It wasn't that bad. How can you make jokes at a time like this? It's my defense mechanism. Some defense. If I was the killer, I would kill you next. It's funny you mentioned this, that Kevin O'Quan book, Making Faces, because that really influenced me too. Like, do you guys know that book, Madam Philip? What book? Making Faces. But you do know the makeup artist, Kevin O'Quan? I've heard of. Yeah, he was a huge, huge makeup artist. He was at the time of the, the height of his career. There's a really good documentary. There's two out on him now, but at the height of his career, he was doing pretty much every celebrity you can think of. Like he was doing Cher. He was doing like all of the supermodels at the time, like Naomi Campbell and like Claudia Schiffer and um, like ton Janet Jackson he was doing. Um, I mean, there were just, it just ran across all gamuts of entertainment. He was kind of the, the first makeup artist who became a celebrity like in his own right because he was doing so many famous women. Yeah, it was interesting. He like did all these sort of crazy transformations of people, like and made them other characters. Hold a second, I have the book. This is making face forward, but it just goes through, but you see like there's these amazing transformations and then he breaks down what he used and yeah. to get this like look that who is wearing this <laughs> on a daily basis. But if you were going to raves, and like doing stuff like that, then you would use these techniques of like changing your complete appearance, your face is a pale uh, canvas, and then he would go in and sculpt this new, it's drag makeup, I mean, he would sculpt this new bone structure and contouring and turn you into, you know, this other person. I had a, um, I was invited to a Halloween party this year and they um, made the theme. They do a big theme every year and everyone goes in theme. It's, you know, it, and it's one of those parties where if you come in in a jacket and, you know, then say, try to lean out on your costume, you're going to be beaten up. But um, this year was Day of the Dead. And I thought that might be, 
I didn't know that I wanted to have my picture taken doing, do you know what I mean? Like, like another culture's grieving or religious symbolism, even though everyone else did. So I opted to go more like zombie and I hired, I never hired anyone to do my makeup and I don't do makeup. I don't, I don't wear makeup. And so I hired a, a drag queen through a friend to do to, to beat my face. And she did it in a, this zo- sexy zombie. And no, I, I would say 90% of the party knows me very well. No one recognized me. Yeah, it's fun, right? It was liberating. It, I felt like I could get away with it. Like I can, does that mean like I could get away with certain yeah, you know yeah. like, It's you, but it's not you. How did that sort of transfer into drag for you? I think it just evolved over time. Um, After I moved to New York and kind of saw some fun drag queens, I would go to some parties. I found like a couple parties that were kind of geared towards more, you know, like Suzanne Barsh parties, Lady Fag parties. At at the time when I moved to New York, Lady Fag was very, she was still very new on the scene in a sense. She wasn't throwing multiple parties at the time. Right. Um, And... That's more downtown. Yeah, and I had a friend who was friends with her who did drag, and he would invite me to her parties, and I kind of just started going to those more fun parties, and then that turned into kind of doing, again, these kind of gender-bending outfits, and then I just decided, like, I should just do drag. It would be fun to, to do it. And I did it a couple times for Halloween. I did it one year for Halloween, and that was kind of what, tipped it to the other side because everyone was like, wow, you looked so good. You looked amazing and you should do it more. And then I realized that, you know, it was fun, a fun creative outlet, one. And then two, like you touched on, Matthew, like just the the kind of power that it gives you and the like confidence boost that it gives you. Yeah. It's all internal because no one really, you know, you're dressed in this costume. So it's like all of this is happening kind of inside your head. And it's, it's very amazing how that happens. And you feel more empowered and you feel beautiful and, and it's great. And then it, I just decided to just continue doing it. I think you definitely meet people more too because you're in drag, you know, the first well, no, time. Well, no, it's I- true. There's this whole, like, I mean, George being one of them, like I, I don't think I would have ever met George had I not done drag. There's a whole group of people that I met out doing drag. That's how we met. That's how I met them. That's the only reason I met them. Sometimes when you're in drag, even in gay spaces, like there's certain certain sorts of sense of like misogyny that you experience. It's interesting navigating the world as a woman when you're a man. Interesting. Because I think also for me, like sometimes I look like a straight up drag queen, but also sometimes I look very fishy, you know? Yes. And so it's interesting to be... You've had men from prison in yes, the cities. I have. It's, 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 it's interesting to get, like, catcalled. Yeah. Or like, sexually harassed, essentially. Yes. <laughs> um, and those types of things. Because I'm a man, but then at that, in that moment, the man who's doing it doesn't realize that I'm a man. Yeah. And so it's this very weird... But I'm obviously, like overly sexualizing myself with the way I'm dressing and how my hair and makeup is done and how I'm carrying myself. So it's interesting to see a man's perspective of like, oh, she's asking for it. So I'm going to like give it to her. Do you recognize it at that moment as harassment? Or does it feel like... And then I kind of usually like fuck with them. Pardon me? I usually kind of fuck with them. Okay. Turn it around and kind of like give it back to them. Yeah. 
you know, or reveal that I'm not a woman, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> like in some way uh-huh. with my voice or like, you know what I mean? And make it very obvious that I'm not a woman. And it's, yeah. it's, it's very interesting because then they kind of get like very freaked out because it throws them all upside down because what they were just doing is this misogynistic kind of like really fucked up gender situation, gender role that has to do with like, you know, years of misogyny that's like yeah. built into society. And then they, they're actually talking to a man. Yeah. And it's this whole like, then they go like their mind, you can tell just like can't comprehend what's happening. It's like they're short circuiting in a sense of like, wait, what's going on? What did, who, what, uh, and then they feel uncomfortable because then they've also found a woman attractive that's actually a man. So that's right. also like, fucked up for them. Which it's I weird, to- seems like a kind of like a, like a, that also feels like kind of a trope from, I don't know, movies and stuff, right? Where yeah. that happens. No, for sure. It's like the it's guy like, and the woman, like, oh, and then, excuse me, hey, I'm. And they get like pissed, like <laughs> they bamboozled, you know? It's like, yeah. I didn't ask you to fucking talk to me, you know? Yeah. Like, I right. didn't, you, you basically like hit on me. Right. And then if you don't like them, then they get angry. That and happened. Were you there, Philip, when we were at Woody's? And then we went to that, what's that called? What's the little sidebar called? Redwood or something? Downstairs? Oh, Rosewood. Rosewood. Oh. <laughs> I'll edit that out. <laughs> Rosewood. They, um, we went there and this guy like hit on Shimon. Shimon wasn't interested and then he got really angry at Shimon. Do you remember that? Yeah. I don't, I don't think I was there. Yeah, I feel like you were there. It was after collage, after Shimon had um, done the... Lou Reed benefit. Which apparently took me three hours, George says. Which is no, that's, that, I think that's, I was probably, I think thing. I, this is a collage story. I was probably cleaning the space uh, while George was going to the bars. Yes. This, this is the one. <laughs> I was probably sweeping up so we could get our security deposit bag. <laughs> while I was drinking away all the While George was taking the, the talent and going to the, the bars. Meet us later. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the cash box. <laughs> well, that's guest relations. Someone that's had the story to be of Kala- out. Yeah, that's the story of Kalash <laughs> for you. Go out with the people. Yeah. That mis- that kind of like acceptable, and I, I mean this in like, like that acceptable misogyny, you know, of like catcalling a woman, which is unacceptable, but yet certain parts of society see it that way. You know, it's the same to Philip's point about like, all these movie tropes of how people get mad when they discover that someone is not the gender that they thought or had the sexual equipment that they thought. To me, it's almost like the only people who can never get in trouble for what they wear, makeup, wigs, outfits, are white straight men. Any other cultural group, you know, you put a dress on, you know, you, you, you've tricked them. If you're wearing, a, 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 if you're a woman and you're wearing a revealing dress, then you deserve to be attacked and, and, and sexually, you know, her. If you're an African-American man in a hoodie, you're probably going to get shot. You know, like, it seems like what we wear really, there is, it, it, it can become risky when you put a different identity on beyond what the norm is, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, that plays a big part in it. Um, You know, it's obviously multi-layered. I think straight white men, just in general, get away with a lot more than most people do in a lot of facets, Yeah. you know? And I think that that's just kind of embedded into our culture in America, and I think most of Europe, you know? Yeah. Um, And so I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how 
it's okay. And like with cultural appropriation, I think that's also been like kind of an interesting thing that has happened over the past like five years or seven years since this has been like a thing of, of seeing how finally people are kind of taking those things back. Right. Right. Like if you're a Latin woman and you wear a revealing dress, it's like, well, they, that's been happening in Latin culture forever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's nothing new. Like you shouldn't be like catcalled because you're wearing this dress that, you know, or this outfit or whatever it is, you know. And so I, do you think some of like you, how your people react to you in drag is not only because you're in drag, but because you're a Latina woman at the time? I think so, for sure. Yeah. I think that goes through like being a gay man or, or in drag as being perceived as a cis woman, I guess, or, or a drag queen for that matter. I think um, being fetishized for your ethnicity is something that happens a lot, you know? Yeah. Yes. Conversation with, yes. Other, with other friends of people of color, you know, whether they're African-American or whether, you know, Asians or, you know, you have these, or people who are mixed races and can't really be placed necessarily and how they get perceived by different people also. Like some people would be like, to me, like, oh, you're not really, Latino, you come across as like, you know, Caucasian or like just European. Like, but that's right. not true. But it is. Oh my God. I'd like to keep it on, please. Valentina. Valentina. Um, uh, so, you know, living in West Hollywood, everyone is required to wear face masks now. Right. And I've seen a lot of guys with, uh, you know, the picture of Valentina being judged by Rue and the little quote next to it, like, I'd like to leave it on, please, which I thought was a really cute and clever, uh, you know, interpretation of a face mask. Are, are these official? Is she getting money from this? I would probably say no, but I would hope that she would be getting something from it because I mean, it, it's her face, her likeness, and it's a very iconic episode. You know, people talk about that. Um, and then Alaska, Alaska did her song about it. Take that thing off of your mouth. I'd like to keep it on, please. It's a lip sync. What part of that do you not understand? There's something about her that I find really um, like a role model in these times because I feel like she doesn't care about like other people's sort of opinions. And she kind I of... Agree. Yeah. World. I, I definitely agree. I mean, for a moment, like when she was on the show, I really enjoyed her. And then she kind of had a little bit of controversy after the show uh, on social media and stuff like that. And I kind of didn't know like where I was with her. But the more that I see her in interviews and stuff like that. I, I, I do like her. I do. Yeah. There's something like, in my, you know, I feel like we're all so overrun with like how we should behave, how we need to act, how we need to oh, do yeah. that. Like in cancel culture in particular, that like she is somebody that like, is like, I am in my own world. I've already won this competition, whether or not I have or not, you know? Yes, for sure. I mean, even with like Gigi, this whole quote of like, you know, I was on the show. I did not go on the show to be a role model. That is not why I went on the show. And I think it is kind of double edged for this is for anyone that goes on TV, reality TV, especially. But, you know, you don't realize if you're going to be one of the girls who are famous and kind of take off from it or not. And you just kind of go on the show with these high hopes that things go well for you. And I don't really think that a lot of them 
and rightfully so think about the role model aspect of it and kind of in today's climate, how you have to be really careful to tread everything you do lightly from that point on and really think about it frontwards and backwards before you post anything, before you go to any type of event, before, you know, you're out with your friends being drunk and stupid. You really have to think about all of these things because everyone has a camera. Everyone, you know, can take a picture of you or take a video of you. And then all of a sudden you were caught doing this or saying this or posting this. And, you know, you're just, you're just a regular person that happened to get on a TV show. Like I understand a year after you've been on the show and you're used to the fame. Yeah. It's, I think it would be a lot. And it's like, you know, we grew up with drag queens who were supposed to be kind of co- confrontational and messy. You know, like they aren't supposed to be role models. Absolutely. It was kind of the opposite of a role model in a sense. I mean, you're drunk, probably on drugs. You're yeah. at a bar until God knows what time in the morning. You're the one hosting the half, you know, the after hours party. It's like you were not meant to be a role model as a drag queen. Like it just, it didn't go hand in hand. And I think, you know, today, some of the girls probably enter the show, you know, let's say someone like Nina West, like she yeah, had that's their step. platform. And that's she step. knew from the beginning of the show that that was her platform moving forward. And, you know, she's not trying to be in the bars till 4 a.m. She has this whole other, like, political platform that I think is right. amazing. But yes. I think she's rare, you know. I think most of the girls are just drag queens who want to be on the show and showcase their talent and see how far they go. And I don't think they should have to, you know, really think about that. Up to this expectation yeah. that you created for them, you know, it's, and then when they don't, then you get upset. Well, it's not necessarily their fault that you're upset with something that, you know, right. that they were supposed to be doing or not it's doing. It's a great artist. Yeah. yeah exactly. Like Pablo Picasso is an asshole, but that doesn't mean he... Right. could walk down your street and girls could not resist the stare. Pablo Picasso never got called an asshole. Like you. Let's talk a little bit too about, um, you know, all of the work that you've done. So like, you know, you're working, you did a lot of work in fashion in New York and yeah. then you sort of segued into doing more like personalities and stars mm-hmm. and drag stars. You did Shangela's look for the Oscars. You know what though, Shimon, I think that she should have won an Oscar for her speech in Untucked. Oh my God. I mean, I have to say, say what you want about Shangela, but that is one of the funniest clips, I think, from Drag Race ever. I mean, Sugar Daddy, every gay person knows what a Sugar Daddy is. You know, and I think that, you know, that scene, it was Mimi I'm first, right? Yeah. And yeah, she's like, it's such a diss at her. You, you are not the type of girl. <laughs> I don't have a sugar daddy. I've never had a sugar daddy. If I wanted a sugar daddy, yes, I probably could go out and get one because I am what? Sickening. You could never have a sugar daddy because you are not that kind of girl. Baby, everything I've had, I've worked for and I've gotten myself. I built myself from the ground up. <laughs> I was having this conversation with David, who you've also done one of these with, but just how, like, evil the girls used to be yeah. on the show and how much better Untucked used to be because it was Throwing real, water on each drink yeah, real drama and the girls, you know, they were definitely going to become more known for being on the show, but they were not going to be like household names or famous because most of the people watching that show at that time were only gays yes. and women who were friends with gays. And that yes. was basically it. And so I think they also kind of felt that there was a space to kind of be themselves a little bit more. 
as yeah. opposed to they didn't you know, have this eye, you know, on the show, which made I think for a little bit better, more entertaining drama. I like the show now because it is less catty and it's more about the talent of the girls. But I think that that was also had an entertaining quality to it as well. And I think it's different from people, you know, who set out to be famous. There are certain things that you do that, you know, you're trying to be like a recording artist or an actor or, you know, a politician or these types of things. Then I think, you know, yes, that kind of sets you up a little bit more. And I guess the show has, you know, gained enough popularity at this point that you kind of know that. But also a lot of these people are young at the same time. Like, I mean, if, you know, any of us went on a show that was at that that kind of magnitude when we were in our early 20s. It's like, I mean, come on. And you make tons of mistakes in your 20s. And then also, like, with social media, you're expected to post constantly, you know? And I think yeah. it's, a, it's a lot of pressure for somebody that's young who, you know, doesn't have a group of people behind them, like, let's say, a recording label or, like, a management company, like, when you're, you know, an actor and you have a manager and all that stuff. All, those people prep you for these things. You know, right. there's teams of people that do that for you. Reality TV does not have that. You just get right. plucked by the producers and the people who created the show, and then you may or may not be famous afterwards, you right. know? George was almost a, a mouseketeer. Oh my gosh. I wanted to be a mouseketeer so bad when I was a kid. I was would have been so jealous if George actually made it. <laughs> JC, Brittany, Josh, Rona, TJ, Ilana, Ricky, Christina, Mark, Nina, Ryan, Matt, Nikki, Tony, Lindsay, Tay, Terry, Fred, you. I got told by a scout in Arizona that I should audition for the show when I was a kid because I used to sing and do all that stuff too. Yeah, it would have been great as a new Mickey Mouse Club mascot. Yes, and they were like, you know, you would be great for it, but I lived in Arizona, so the chances of auditioning were slim to none. Well, they actually, they already had like a kind of lightly Middle Eastern... They did. Kid on the show. At that time, there was only room for one person who was the Brown. It's like you the one Asian kid, the one like, I don't know what they are. They could be Hispanic, they could be Middle Eastern. Yes. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did look like me, though. I'll show you a picture. He, he did look like me. Yeah. That, that was a bizarre audition because. Everyone before me, I got to the second round. I got to the round of Jessica Simpson and um, my esteemed uh, uh, peer. <laughs> <laughs> but then I didn't get past it because I had watched the two auditions before, dance auditions, because I got past the singing audition. And um, it was to Ice Ice Baby. And I knew, like, I was like, I... I love this song. I know this song. And then suddenly they played Doing the Do by Betty Boo. Oh. You know that song? Yes. Get out of the kitchen. Ain't got no time for your boo-boo. Betty Boo. Betty Boo just doing the do when you are through. And there's nothing you can do. It was a random British kind of funk, you know. Yes pre-delight type song. And that was not what I had, had experienced 
you know, in my uh, discography in seventh grade, you know? Yes, that's hard. So what happens, I guess, if you had become famous, would you have been a role model? uh, Brittany and and, uh, Justin and Christina. And Ryan. How many were there altogether? Because there's a handful of them became famous, but I think that there's more that did not become famous. Yeah. did become famous. I'd say it was like one seventh of them became famous. Yeah, that makes sense. Because um, JC Chavez from Instinct is also from. Yes, this is true. Uh, obviously, Ryan Gosling and a couple others. But there was a, actually there was a girl on the show, and her last name was Allie. Oh. Also. Not you, though. But it wasn't me. <laughs> so I kept doing high kicks over and over again to showcase that I could do these. <laughs> Hi, kids. I can dance. Look at this. <laughs> like we can't have nothing this. else. New kid with ADD <laughs> on the Mickey Mouse Show Club. Yes. I want to hear a little bit about Shangela. I love Shangela. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. I met her in New York. Yeah. When I moved here, I kind of helped, uh, like, did some wig work for her and stuff like that. And then she was doing the. That was when she was doing all the press for a Stars Board. So yeah, so that was fun. Um, it was like a last minute thing too, right? Like the, um, the, the, the dress or the wig you had to take. Oh yeah. Like- so this was like kind of a, so I was going to New York for work. The guy who was designing her dress, they were like worried about him being able to finish the dress and then ship it in time. And then she had had these people offer to make her a wig. So before I left, we went on their, like on their page and like picked out the wig that we thought would work with the dress and like kind of stylized this whole thing together. Like, was that the kind of thing you check in the luggage? No, or you carry it? <laughs> <laughs> that work. I had to because they were both big. They both packaged them in like, you know. So I was able to just put the, the dressmaker brought it in like a full-on suitcase. So I just put the wig in with the, the dress and then uh, check that is one thing. Yeah, and then I had to drop it off. I, my flight got in at like 1 a.m. And I went to Shangela's house first before I went home to drop off the dress and the wig with her so she could... That was like a Friday, I think. And the Oscars were Sunday. So she had like a day. If there was anything that needed to be altered or changed, you know, to do to deal with that. There's a little photo of you doing her wig in Out Magazine. Yeah, because the Out Magazine, she took like a whole bunch of selfies and, you know, all that stuff while we were getting ready. And they did a thing on her because she was the first drag queen who was at the walk to the red carpet of the Oscars. So it's kind of a big deal for her. Yeah. For her and for the drag community in general. You can help support Queerona Podcast by sponsoring us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Queerona, where there are several tiers of support where you can assist us with our production and bringing new voices for season two of Queerona. There are three tiers of support. <laughs> oh my God! What are you doing? There are four tiers of support for Queerona. Our first tier is a $15 shout out. Our second tier gives you all access to all of season one immediately at $40. At $50, you receive that plus the shout out and. For those who really want to support us, you can get a luxury t-shirt designed by collage artist Toby Celery for $100.
So my thing too that I would like to recommend for everyone to watch is a television show based in Philadelphia. It's on AMC right now and it's called Dispatches from Elsewhere. It's great. Isn't it so good? Welcome to the Jejun Institute. You've all been selected as secret agents. You are needed now. You must fight Clara. It's a game. This is a government operation. It's behind all of this. Are you a crazy person? Behind this world, there is a world which has been hidden from you. You say that it's a game, a prank. We're watching you. Well, what if it's real? My friend, you don't belong here. Come with me. Choice is yours. I don't know how much of it for you is intriguing because it's all filmed in Philadelphia, Matt. Mm-hmm. But it's there's something about it. Like, it's really a, about ideas and about sort of like finding happiness and sort mm-hmm. of how we can all get stuck in our lives. Um, and, you know, I think this time particularly, we're all sort of reanalyzing um, what we've done with our lives and what we want to change and, you know, how some things that we thought matter don't matter at all whether it's the fact that I haven't even thought about my job anytime that I'm not having to be there or whatever it is with anyone else. So I think that it's like, it's something that sort of encourages that line of thinking, but it's also kind of a magical, fun, like adventure. And it's a little bit surreal, like a really surreal and like magical realist version of like one of these sort of caper movies. Um, and it has um, uh, Jason Siegel and um, I don't know the, who the actress is who plays Simone. And then um, Sally Field's in it. Sally Field and Andre 3000, yeah. who I saw multiple times during the filming. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey to me. Um, so I highly recommend this, this series. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, I'll go next. I am binging... And it's led me down a YouTube hole, um, a series called Defunct Land, which I actually um, picked up from a, our previous guest, Jesse, shared it with you, George, um, about the Cedar Point roller coaster. Disaster oh. transport. There's a world apart, a place in your heart, can't you hear it call? Disaster transport. It'll take you out of this world, but it may not get you back. New this summer at Cedar Point. Can you read me? Basically, amusement parks or amusement park rides that no longer exist. And it strings together found footage and newspapers and these little 15 minute um, little, you know, 
this attraction, you know, is lost. I just watched one right before this call on Journey into Imagination from Epcot Center. Mm. How it, you know, it was such an important part of our life, and then they kind of mucked it up. And mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's just fascinating. And then it leads into... But it still uh, exists because I was just there. Journey into Imagination? Yeah. Yeah, right? they... Yeah, it does. Um, it not in its original, most beloved format. Right. I will. Uh, I will. I'll send you that clip. There's. Two, it's actually a two episode double whammy on Journey into Imagination. Mm-hmm. What's that little character's name? Figment. Figment. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's a, definitely a good choice. Matt. <laughs> Continue, Philip. <laughs> I um. This week I've been uh, thinking about. The Instagram, I'm, I've been using a lot of Instagram in this uh, instead of TV, but um, the Instagram account of the poet Rick Benjamin. Hmm. And Rick Benjamin is a former poet laureate of the state of Rhode Island. He's taught at Brown and RISD. I think he's now in University of California, Santa Barbara. But he was doing a poem a day for National Poetry Month. With two poems from the 13th century by Persian poets. And the first recognizes that it is spring. By Rumi. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come, these will not matter. If you do come, these will not matter. It makes me like realize how poetry should be heard and listened to. And like you can have emotions that aren't. Just like, oh, I'm going to push this off, you know, and you just make fun of it. It's like I wouldn't think about poetry on Instagram. Yeah, I know, right? And this is what I mean. It was like, it's just so different. And a friend of mine that George knows, our friend uh, Peter, recommended it on his Instagram and said, if you're not following this guy, you should watch these daily poems. And it's just really, really good. And it's so right. different than most of what we see on Instagram. Yeah, and that's it's serious. It's not making fun of poetry. It's like really doing it. <laughs> I enjoy that. Yeah, so uh, the documentary that I was thinking of is Keith Haring Uncovered. I like um, something I've been doing while this has been happening is kind of going back and just watching like old fun interviews of like icons that I like from back in the day, queer icons and whatnot. And so I came across this article about how um, he did this mural in Melbourne and then someone stole the signature off of it. If that work was in a collection in the National Gallery of Victoria, it would have been conserved within an inch of its life situated right near the Tote Hotel, it had great culture around it, but it also kind of got urinated on a lot. Basically, they, you know, took the signature part of the mural and this whole story behind that situation. Um, and then I actually really liked that we talked about Kevin O'Quan because he's come up a couple times, actually, yeah. um, talking with people about it. So um, now I might go back and kind of delve into, if you haven't seen his documentary, the documentary on him, it's really good. It's really well done. He had an opioid addiction towards the end of his life, and he had a, like this chronic illness where he continued to grow, and so he was in constant pain. And so he, like everyone else in pain, they put him on Vicodin or something, and then he became addicted to it. And yeah. so that was kind of the kind of beginning of the end for him. He was high on opioids all the time and kind of started fucking up at jobs and not showing up on time and you know all that kind of stuff was happening because of it. Um, if you haven't seen the documentary, you definitely should. But that's been something I've been doing, just kind of going back and like finding old queer icons that I like and kind of just interviews that they did or stuff like that. Well, thank you, Anthony, for coming on the show. And ciao for now. 
The champagne tastes burnt. It was obviously frozen in the bottle at some point. If you don't like the champagne, then don't drink it. (laughs) (laughs) You said this wasn't going to be a social evening. So whatever it was, I enjoyed myself thoroughly. Thank you, Mrs. Colby. Ciao. For now. You have been listening to Queerona. Queerona was hosted by George Alley, Matthew Ray, and Philip Moore. With editing by Paul Schuler. Theme song, Undivided Attention, by George Alley. Available on iTunes. To support Queerona, please go to patreon.com backslash Queerona. Queerona is available on iTunes, automatic.com. 